Well, I greet you in the name of Jesus. It's a blessing to be here. When I realized that the chorus wasn't going to be here this morning, I didn't know exactly how well-filled our meeting house was going to be, but it's a blessing to have uh, the benches full. You know, there's times that uh, people leave for a period of time, and Lord willing, they come back, and it's good to have uh, Krista Eshelman back here with us. It's good to see you again. Welcome back from your time in Asia. Most of us at some time or another struggle with a certain amount of indecision. Maybe it's minor decisions such as deciding where to go out to eat or perhaps which route to travel. Um, maybe whether or not you should attend a certain event, some minor decisions. There's other decisions that are uh, perhaps more major, more life-changing. Um, should I change careers? Should I start a dating relationship? Um, should I move to another country, perhaps serve uh, somewhere else in mission work? And some of those, some of those decisions have, have serious longer-term um, I wouldn't say consequences, but effects. And so it's normal not to always know what to do or what to say in certain circ circumstances, certain situations. It's not real common uh, to immediately uh, be able to just make life-changing decisions um, quickly. And perhaps it's not good to be able to. But perhaps you or you know someone who, who struggle with indecisiveness on a more regular basis. Perhaps you fight a, a constant battle with indecision. You second guess. You know, am I doing this right? Should I have done it this way? What should I do? Is this what the Lord's will is? And perhaps there's, there's multiple and various reasons why you may struggle with that. Uh, sometimes it's personality. Some people are just more confident than others. Uh, perhaps it may have to do with uh, the home you grew up in or the environment that you find yourself in now. Perhaps it's some past experiences. But you know, some indecisiveness isn't really a problem. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't have uh, long-term lasting effects. But you know, other times it can cause some serious, serious issues. Uh, and it may be a sign of, of deeper uh, spiritual problems. Uh, perhaps indecisiveness that waffles, that waffles between uh, faith and doubt. Uh, it's someone who waffles between uh, belief and unbelief, between love for God and love for the world. Now, that, that type of indecisiveness is serious. Uh, that is something that is really, it's something that the Bible calls much worse. It doesn't call it indecisiveness. It calls it uh, being double-minded, being double-minded. And that's uh, the, the subject I want to look at this morning. title is Dangers of the Double Mind. Dangers of the Double Mind. Now, when I first started uh, looking into this, 
I thought it was a little bit more common in Scripture than what it is. Uh, the word double-minded is only found three times in Scripture. Can someone tell me generally uh, where that might be? I'm sorry. James, okay. Any other ideas? There's three times. Well, once in the Old Testament, Psalms 119, Psalm 119, verse 113, and then twice in the book of James. So it's James 1.8 and James 4.8. What does it mean to be double-minded? Is it, is it just general indecisiveness? Well, I think it's safe to say that it's not just general indecisiveness. It, that's not what we're wanting to look at this morning, and I don't think that's what is in focus in these three verses uh, in Scripture. In Psalm 119, 119 verse 113, the psalmist very uh, plainly states, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. So the literal translation here of that Hebrew word is divided in heart and mind. And so he goes on to, if you read, well, the whole chapter is about um, loving and meditating on the law of God, on the word of God. And he goes on to say in the, in the next verses um, how he, he, he's talking about the people who keep God's laws in compared to those who reject it. And we begin to see a glimpse of the meaning here of double-minded. To be double-minded is to have a divided loyalty. Have a divided loyalty. And it's, it's, it can be unsettling at times to be around someone um, who you're never quite sure, you're never quite clear on what side of an issue they're going to be on. Uh, someone who has a divided loyalty, they behave differently compared or depending on uh, the situation that they find themselves in. Uh, maybe we all struggle with that to a certain extent, where if you find yourselves in, in one uh, situation, you say or do things, and then uh, if you find yourselves in another situation, maybe you act somewhat differently. Well, that is, that's, that's, moving toward the direction of being double-minded. And it's unsettling to be around people like that because you don't really know exactly where they stand on something. There's other, the other two passages are found in James. And so open your Bibles and to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Both of both in chapter one and in chapter four, it's the same Greek word. You know, sometimes we have a, a common Greek word that's translated multiple different ways in Scripture, just maybe due to slightly differences in context or just for for variety. But here, it's the same word. Um, this same, this Greek word is only found in these two places, these two verses. And the literal translation is, is two souls, okay? Literally two souls, two minds. And I found it interesting that some, some scholars actually think that James uh, coined this term. 
uh, that he's the one who came up with this term because the word is it's not a common word found in, in, other, um, in other writings, in other literature. James 1, 1 through 8. And he begins this passage by alluding to the current situation uh, of his audience. And, and he was primarily writing to the Jewish Christians uh, who had been scattered due to persecution. They'd been scattered abroad. And most of these, or at least some of these people, were probably part of James's flock. So he was a leader of the church in Jerusalem. And over time, that church, due to persecution, had been scattered. And so they often were facing difficult circumstances. And James here is encouraging them to find joy in their trials. So we'll read uh, chapter 1, 1 through 8. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the key verses here are verses 5 through 8. And he begins kind of a new thought, but it's very closely related to the context of dealing with, dealing with trials. So when do you need wisdom? Uh, if you have prayed for wisdom, why did you pray for wisdom? Why do you need wisdom? Somebody. You have a problem. You're, you, have, you have come to a point that you don't know what to do, and you need wisdom. And that's what James here is, is alluding to. He's saying you have, you're facing all these trials. You're facing these, these decisions. You're facing these things that are um, perhaps suffering, something that is testing your faith, and you come to the conclusion that you need wisdom, and so you ask of God. You ask of God, you ask in faith with no doubting, and he hears our prayer and he gives liberally. So we need wisdom because we find ourselves facing a situation that we don't know what to do on our own. What is best? What will bring resolution to this problem that we have? What does God want me to do? And so we, we cry out to God for wisdom. You know, I, a wis asking for wisdom, I think, is a little bit like asking for patience. Uh, I think they both come similarly uh, through experience. Uh, it's, I think God has a way of, of giving us wisdom through our experiences. And so uh, when you pray for wisdom or pray for patience, um, be ready for how, how God gives you the answers those prayers but God will give us wisdom if we ask in faith without doubting and now I do want to say this here verse 6 this thing about without doubting 
uh, or as the King James says, without wavering. I think this verse can sometimes be used to promote the idea that um, if our prayers aren't answered in the way that we would like them to be, uh, that it was because somehow our faith was weak, we had, there must have been doubt, uh, we did not believe strong enough, there was a little bit of weakness somewhere, and that's not what James here is saying. I think that thought process turns prayer into kind of this, this act of, of works where it's, it's based on, on whether we had enough faith. And that's not, that's not what James here is saying. saying. He's, he's not, um, he doesn't want to change the focus of our prayer to something that we do instead of or away from God. James is, is explaining that he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven here and there with the wind. He's double-minded. He has two souls, two loyalties. On one hand, he has faith in God. On the other hand, he loves the world. And I think we can get a little bit more of this context of this uh, struggle between loving God and loving the world uh, by looking then at James chapter 4. But he, he's talking about someone who isn't um, having a, a little bit of, of weakness, who is, is wondering whether... Um, God's plan for his life is, is, is good. Uh, I think sometimes when we're facing trials and struggles that it's, it's normal, perhaps common, uh, to struggle somewhat with, with some doubt that, that God is, is, his plan is good for us. But it's not that we're doubting God. And this is a little bit what James here is talking about, is someone who has two loyalties. He's double-minded. He's unstable in all of his ways. Let's, let's go ahead and turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and we get another picture here of what it means to be double-minded. James chapter 4, and I think, um, so it, it's, the word is found in verse 8, but to get the, the context of it, I think we'll start and read verses 1 through 10. So James 4, 1 through 10. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world would make himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So here we get a pretty clear picture, I think, of what James is talking about when he says someone who is double-minded. Someone who is double-minded. Someone who is trying to be friends with God and the world at the same time. It's impossible. It's impossible, yet how often do we try to somehow make it work? We think, you know, I think we can do it. Perhaps not consciously, but unconscious, subconsciously, our decisions say that. Like our Sunday school lesson there in Philippians 1, it's impossible to live for Christ with the mind of the world. You just can't do it. It doesn't work. And James here is clear that to be friends with the world makes us enemies with God. Okay, there's, 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 no, there's no in between. God is a jealous God, and he does not allow adultery of any kind. And so to love, to love the world is, is basically, essentially, uh, committing adultery to God. And the only cure for double-mindedness here is repentance. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's a spiritual issue. It's not, um, it's not just basic indecisiveness. It's actually a spiritual issue where you have divided loyalties. Where on one hand, you, you want to follow God. On the other hand, you don't want to give up the world. And James is warning Christians not to be wobbly. Don't be indecisive. Don't be conflicted in your desire to, to obey God. And there's, there's more to it. It's a description of someone who has one foot in the world and one foot in God's way of life. They're stuck here in the middle. And like you said in, in chapter 1, that he says they're unstable in all their ways. They're confused. They're restless, unable to make up their minds. If you think a little bit about the kingdom of Israel, there's, there's multiple examples of, of, of double-mindedness in Scripture. But one of them I thought of was, was the kingdom of Israel back in Elijah's time. So if you think about, think about that specifically there, with uh, Ahab, Jezebel, uh, Elijah, and you know how God pronounced judgment on, on the kingdom of Israel. He brought on the famine, what was it, three years, three and a half years, and finally it kind of came to a confrontation. Well, the people then, what, what brought this all to a head was that they were worshiping God. They had the temple there, but they also had a temple to Baal and Ashtoreth and a variety of other idols. And so they were, they were double-minded. They had the temple of God. They had the temple to Baal. And I don't know if they went half and half. If one, it was, they, could, they weren't making up their minds. And it was because of Ahab and Jezebel. They tended toward, toward Baal worship. But Elijah told Ahab to bring, the, to bring the priests of Baal together. They were all going to have a confrontation. And let's see, that's in 1 Kings. Basically, he brings everybody together. I think it's 1 Kings chapter 18.
this. Um, verse 21, first, first Kings 18, verse 21. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. So he said, how long are you going to just falter here? Wiggle back and forth, waffle back and forth between God and Baal. He said, make a decision. You cannot be double-minded. How long will you falter between two opinions? How long will you remain double-minded? And he made it unmistakably clear that they couldn't straddle the fence. And we can't either. Okay, we cannot straddle the fence between God and the world. God alone is to be obeyed. God alone is to be served. We can't split that baby. It just doesn't work. Are we indecisive about which God we want to serve? Do we have one foot in the world, one foot in God's way of life? Do we secretly love the world? Do we love um, the world's entertainment? Do we try to mold God and, and fit his word into a form and a shape that somehow allows us to continue living the way we want to live, somehow that makes obedience uh, easier for us? Are we finding ourselves kind of tied up in knots? It's double-minded. Uh, Thursday evening over at Lighthouse, uh, Steve Yoder from Floyd, Virginia, uh, preached a message, and he, he gave one point that, that stood out to me. He was talking about... Um, sheep and wolves and how sheep need to be protected. But then he also brought out that only in a church can a sheep turn into a wolf and how a sheep that um, desire, consistently desires the food, the fellowship, the entertainment, the clothing of the world sooner or later becomes a wolf. And that is, that's an example of being double-minded. And I think that is perhaps the chief danger of being double-minded, is that we don't stay in that one foot in and one foot out type of thing. Our minds, it's not static. We can't just, just stay at one spot. We always tend toward one direction. A double-minded person will always tend, trend away from God without the Spirit of the Lord working in his life. Jesus declared that no one can serve two masters. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So God in the world is two opposites. And you can't have both. They're opposite natures. It's impossible to love one completely and have love for the other as well. You have to love the one and hate the other. I know it, it seems 
like um, that is that is is kind of a hard saying that unless we hate the world we cannot love God but that's what Jesus is saying to be double-minded is to be double-souled or double-hearted let's go back to James chapter 1 The verses here that talk about James asking God for wisdom without doubting. We need to ask God for wisdom without doubting because he who doubts is like a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. It's someone who has divided allegiance, divided alliance. Well, what happens to someone who tries to be neutral and, and to be loyal to do different sides in, in a battle? Well, they both get, he gets shot at from both sides. And that's the way this is, is you cannot have your feet in both worlds, in both sides. Someone who has their heart divided between the allegiance to God and the allurements of the world. He's not sure if he wants to follow God's wisdom. Okay, someone who is doubting when he's asking God for wisdom isn't sure that he actually wants godly wisdom. Sometimes a double-minded person will pray for wisdom and peace about a situation when their mind is already made up on what they've decided and uh, in opposition to scripture and they're trying to get some, come to some sort of, of peace and understanding about their about their decision. Too often, I think people will ignore clear teaching in scripture and yet pray for wisdom, but their mind's already made up. They're trying to convince themselves that God will somehow be okay with that decision. And we shouldn't expect to hear anything different from God when he's already spoken clearly about it in scripture. Okay, that's not what asking for wisdom means. If a person is double-minded, it's hard to have confidence in someone like that, in such a person, uh, because they are driven. <clears throat> they are driven by the waves. If you've ever seen um, uh, a, you know, something sometimes when I'm around, I'm not around running, rushing water real often, but sometimes uh, when I am, sometimes I'll throw a leaf or a stick or something in to just to watch it kind of float and see where it goes, the different little eddies and the swirls and through the rocks. And <clears throat> that little stick or leaf on the water is just completely, completely um, moves at the whims of the water. It has no control. It's, it's taken here and there by the waves. And that's the way a double-minded person is. Someone who isn't focused on God. They just go here and there, here and there. They're unsettled. They lack conviction. A person with a double mind or a double heart often lives with double standards. They're two-faced, double-tongued. Uh, sometimes you think of someone, you describe someone as, as speaking with a forked tongue. Well, 
Unfortunately, that's true sometimes. They're double-minded. <clears throat> Generally, people who are double-minded aren't sought out for service or responsibilities because generally they aren't, they aren't faithful, they aren't dependable because you don't know exactly um, where they'll be on any certain, any certain uh, situation or question that comes up. It's hard to put confidence in a double-minded man. The Proverbs are often pretty colorful uh, when they, or when the writer, whether it was Solomon or someone else, uh, speaks to a situation. And Proverbs 25, verse 19 speaks of this. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. So we're, we're used to depending on our teeth and depending on our feet. We chew. We don't really think too much about whether our teeth are doing a good job as long as they're dependable. Um, same way with our feet. You know, I, I walk. I'm not really thinking about whether my foot is going to take my weight. But if it's out of joint, or if I have a broken tooth, well then, then I know for sure I cannot depend on it. And that's the way a double-minded person is, is you can't depend on someone who is double-minded. They aren't committed. James is calling for commitment, total commitment. We're taught, um, in a, in a financial sense, for sure, and perhaps some other ways as well, uh, not to put all of our eggs in one basket. And that generally is good, uh, is, is wise, not to put all of your eggs in one basket. But you know, that doesn't work spiritually, okay? We are called to put all of our eggs in one basket, and God is that basket. God is the only basket that's safe to put all of our eggs into. It's called singleness of mind, and that's the opposite of, of double-minded, is singleness of mind. We want to be, have singleness of mind. We're called to that as Christians, as children of God, we're called to singleness of mind, singleness of heart, devoted, committed. Psalm 86, verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Do you ever pray for God to unite your heart? I don't know that I ever have to unite my heart, but that's a beautiful thing. That is something I think that we should pray, that God would unite our hearts to fear your name. It implies that sometimes there is some division in our heart, and I think that's natural. But we need to pray. We need to ask the Lord to unite our hearts. Unite our hearts to fear his name. That should be our prayer. Why did David ask God to unite his heart? Well, evidently, he struggled with a divided and a double heart. Um, we know from his, his uh, experiences a variety of times where he failed. And yet we also know that he, he strived for singleness, singleness of mind. And he, his prayer was for a clean heart, a united heart. He, wants, he goes on to say that he wants to praise God with all of his heart. 
Not with half of it, not with a quarter of it, with all of it. And that should be our focus, to be single-minded. Focus exclusively on pleasing God to, and, and obeying his will. You know, I don't know if you have big to-do lists or whether you're a big agenda person. Um, for me, it kind of goes in spurts. But, you know, to, to focus on, on singleness of mind and doing God's will, it requires taking our agenda, taking our to-do list, and taking our name off of it and just stamping right on top, stamping right on top the will of God. That should be our agenda. That needs to be first. And perhaps that seems like a sacrifice, perhaps too big of a sacrifice. Maybe sometimes it means losing out, losing out on certain friends. Uh, maybe it means missing out certain forms of entertainment. Maybe certain career opportunities, certain jobs, certain habits that we don't want to change. But that sometimes is what it takes. I had to think of Lot. I think Lot is somebody else that perhaps struggled with a double mind. Um, I'm not going to go back and look at the passage, but if I remember right, after, well, he grew up, if you remember the account there, he grew up with Abraham, along with Abraham. Peter calls him righteous Lot. Um, that's one of the things that sometime I'd like to ask Peter about. But Peter calls him righteous Lot. So he believed God. There was, he was a, a, a believer. And yet when he, when he split away from Abraham, what does it say? I believe uh, some, he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Okay, So he, he moved toward toward the world. And then the next time we find and read about Lot, he's actually not just uh, toward Sodom, he's actually in Sodom. Okay, he's, he's living, he's bought a house, he's living in, in the city. He's sitting at the gate. And while he may have still followed God, he had certainly lost uh, most of his influence because then when the city was destroyed, he was unable to, he was unable able to convince his, his married daughters and sons-in-law to, to follow him out. Um, he was, he was double-minded. James says to cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. It means we need to turn, turn from what we're doing and change. Uh, Paul, in a lot of his letters, he often spoke about sincerity of heart. Uh, I noticed that word in our Sunday school lesson about being sincere. Um, we need to be sincere and singleness. In Colossians 3, verse 22 and 23, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart fearing God, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Sincerity of heart is to be single-minded. Single-minded with our focus, having one focus, not being, uh, having our, our loyalties, our priorities uh, divided. We have one priority, and it's Christ. It's to live for Christ. Our single-minded goal should be to be like Christ. No matter the cost, no matter the circumstances, no matter what, to be like Christ. That is 
single-mindedness, being sincere. As someone who isn't struggling with double-mindedness, who isn't struggling with, with focus, uh, we need to be like Christ. Shall we have a song?